And so after th like taking all those things into consideration, we decided the acquisition was good for us because it was both cash and equity in the parent company. And we got a percentage from the top line revenue and we, we maintain a, an autonomous company. So what happened in the acquisition was that I continued to, to manage the company. We had full autonomy. We just at the end of the month would send a, an email to our parent company saying, all right, this month we need this and this amount of money and they just transfer. So it was a really easy life. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. What if you could hang out with experienced tech industry executives, ask them about career growth, equity compensation, investing, financial strategies, and more. Then take an insight or two to guide your own career and lifestyle. Each week on the show, Christopher Nelson shares an in-depth look at how to navigate tech careers and hyper-growth companies, select the right companies to work for, earn equity, and build a passive income portfolio. Christopher is an author, tech exec, and principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. His goal is to give you the information you need to grow your career, build wealth, and make an impact. Now, here's Christopher. Hello, and welcome to episode number 11 of Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. I've been in the tech industry for 20 plus years, and after climbing my way to the C-suite, working for three companies that have been through an IPO, and investing my way to financial independence, I'm here to share everything that I've learned with you and introduce you to others that can help you along the way. Now, today, we are talking with Litton Yahav. Litton Yahav is a serial founder who built and sold a company for a great equity payday and now also spends a lot of his time as an alternative investor. I want to make sure and dig into this interview, you know, what are the things that helped him grow his career, that helped him get this company to an exit, and then how is he taking the responsibility to being his own wealth manager today? I want to ask him a lot of very detailed questions and really end this with then how is he building tools for other people today in tech to be able to manage their money as well? I'm excited. Let's get into this. All right. I'm excited to introduce everybody to Litten Yahav. Litten is a serial founder. He founded Sagoma in 2012. Uh, it's a 3D imaging company around diamonds. He ended up getting it acquired by R2Net, which is a fascinating story, and then went on to found Visor. Visor is a uh, investment management platform for individuals that can manage your traditional investments along with your alternatives. And this is so important to many of us who invest in alternative investments. I'm excited to dig into his story today. Welcome, Litton. Thanks, Chris. Excited to be here. Well, great. Well, everybody else on the show, I love starting with origin stories. And yours is so interesting because you had this career as a naval officer. Then you were you know, doing a lot of sailing and then boom, all of a sudden you're a startup founder. That's how it reads on LinkedIn. But I would love to hear a little bit more of you know, how did you discover technology and, and decide to go found a company? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the background is important. So, so first of all, I'm, I live in Israel, but I was born in the States, in Los Angeles. And when I was nine, my parents took me and my brother on a trip around the world because a good friend of them passed away and packed us up to homeschool us. And our first stop was Israel. Wow. My mom told my dad, you can go wherever you want to want to raise my kids here. My mom's American, by the way. My dad's Israeli. Wow. And she wanted to move us here. And so we've been here ever since. I went to school in Tel Aviv, then got drafted into the Navy. For those who don't know, in Israel, military service is mandatory. So everyone after high school gets drafted. Men go in, used to go in for three years, women for two. Now they do a little less. I got drafted into the Naval Academy and was in the Navy for six years as a Naval officer. 
on warships and sort of always had this entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, even before the Navy. It's like I was, you know, trying to teach myself to code a little HTML, stuff like that, trying to build websites. And and during the Navy, I always say, think outside the box. And, and so I've always had this sort of pull towards, you know, building stuff and, and solving problems. So after the military, six years in the Navy, uh, every Israeli finishes the military, goes traveling. So I went traveling for like six, seven months in South Central America, wow. got back and went to school, studied law and business. And during that worked as a sailing instructor because, you know, sailing Navy makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And, um, and during this, during school, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, and her sister, we, we built, we founded a tutoring school. We had teachers that came work for us and we had kids come and, and pay us to learn and get tutored. And that was my first real experience of entrepreneurship, like actual entrepreneurship. We didn't raise money, but right. it was like, we all put it, we all pitched in some money and, you know, dealing with hiring people and renting a space and firing people, which <laughs> just like, you know, an anecdotal, it was like, for me, being in those positions where you're out, out of your comfort zone, like we yes. had to fire one of the employees and was like, I want to do it because I want to experience it. It's a shitty situation, but I want to experience it. So yeah. when I do it in the future, I'll actually grow and, and do it better. So anyway, so that was the first experience as an entrepreneur. And then we can dive into the rest of it. But that's sort of like went to school and during school, amazing people and was part of the Sam Zell entrepreneurship program at the end of school and during that. Yeah, I, re I read an article that you you wrote recently on that. What was the impact? Because sometimes I do think that specific programs can have deeper impacts on on people. What 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 did that Sam Zell program for entrepreneurship? What was the impact that it had on you? So first of all, Sam Zell who recently passed, That's know, right. I think a month ago, um, the dean of this Israeli college approached him, Sam Zell, like 25 years ago. And like every billionaire, he came and asked him, well, can you, can you donate money to the school and we'll build a building and put your name on it? And Sam, and this says a lot about the person, is like, I don't want a building on my name. I want to be, do something that's more profound, that's more contributional. And so he said, how about we build a program which helps... I don't know, high achievers yeah. uh, built something big, either in leadership positions or entrepreneurial stuff. And he did the same type of program as he did in Israel and two other colleges in the U.S. as well. So there are three programs that are funded by Sam Zell that are built to sort of as a launch pad for entrepreneurship. And so this program was basically, I heard about it before even going to school, and I heard that this specific school had that program, and it's the last year of studies from all faculties at this college, 20 people get into this year-long program of founding a business, yes. looking for an idea to build team formation, validation, ideation, all the Asian mm. words. And, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and the, sky's, the sky's the limit. And so that was super powerful also because meeting amazing people, learning really important stuff, and also you know a lot of uh, um, push and drive to actually doing the legwork. And so right. it was an amazing experience. And I can dive into that like just for a whole hour. About yeah, hour we about could, that. we could. And so, and so, no, I wanted to touch on that because I think many people, right, especially getting into startups, there are multiple programs around. And I think what you highlighted there and the, the things that I'm hearing in common around those programs are they give you the skills, but they focus on execution. Okay, how do you fail fast? They do things that may be a little different than what you learned in normal school. Well, okay, you don't want to fail your exams fast, <laughs> right? But arguably, 
in entrepreneurship, you want to fail fast, learn, iterate. So did that give you the momentum when you came out of school that then you started focusing on Sagoma and looking for those opportunities? And so this happened within the program. So at the beginning of the program, it's oh, like wow. 20 people. First week is, all right, you have to form teams of two to four people. And then within like two months, you have to have an idea that okay. you want to execute. And so you start just like researching the world and finding where are there opportunities, where are there problems to solve inefficiencies. And we found the diamond industry to be a very inefficient, old fashioned industry. Fascinating. So essentially we started the whole ideation phase and, and validation phase within the Zell program. Hmm. And at the end of the year, it's a year long program. We, we fly they fly us out to the U S to meet with a bunch of interesting people and VCs. Like we had lunch and dinner with Warren Buffett. It was, it was, it's wow. an amazing experience. And at the end of the year, it's like, hopefully most people continue with the business ideas, mm. or bi actual businesses they founded throughout the year. And so at the end of that year, we were four guys working on this thing together. Two of us decided we wanted to get, continue building it. Two other guys decided they wanted to do other stuff. And that's fine. We're still really good friends. And so me and my co-founder, after uh, school ended, we're like, all right, what do we do now? And how do we take this thing off the ground? And we just went all in and just continued meeting with people. And that's also a whole story we can dive into. But that's what, like the whole program itself was the facilitation for the diamond business. Mm. But the actual work of building it happened after we finished when we just went all in on it. Right. And so at that point in time, when you were thinking, did you, did any of the, you know, ideas around startup companies and, you know, you now you're a founder, equity owner, building wealth, was that a part of the mindset or was that something that just sort of came along with your entrepreneurial spirit to go solve problems? So I guess my answer is that I've always had the spirit of trying to solve problems with technology. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think what, these types of program help programs help do is focus, mm. understand, like you said, like focusing on what needs to be done, right. On, on iterating fast, not building a product until you feel like this is what the product needs to be, that needs, mm. you need to build. Like a lot of people go ahead and go and build out and write a, a bunch of lines of code. Right. And then they go and look at the, and then they go and look for if there's a market for this. Right. But mm. you learn, right. You learn the, the right way of doing things like, all right, let's first validate the market. Let's do the minimum viable product before writing any kind of line of code to make sure that this is something that people would actually buy. Mm. So I think those are things that are perfected in this type of, I, I wouldn't call it an incubator, but this type of, type of entrepreneurship program. And so tell me a little bit about the, the size and scale of what you grew uh, Sagoma to be. Yeah. Um, so before even, I'll dive into that, but just to put things into context, all right. So when we started Sagoma, which is the 3D image diamond thing, we we interviewed a lot of people within the diamond industry, and everyone in the industry said this is this is something no one will use, all right. Just to put that into context, because right. it's a very old-fashioned industry where people are used to trading diamonds, very old-fashioned, right, flying manual. around the world with diamonds, manual. Like it's it's like crazy way that diamond. Like we. We always tell the story about this, these diamond exchange buildings with the highest level of security you can imagine. But once you enter them, you go like 50 years back in time. So old fashioned, like long hallways with doors, with handwritten notes saying, I'm looking to buy, I'm looking to sell these and these types of diamonds. And then brokers walking down these hallways with suitcases full of diamonds, knocking on doors and going in and out and people flying around the world with diamonds and suitcases. It's just like crazy. 
<laughs> and we said like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would, why can't you take a diamond, photograph it very high with very high resolution, high precision tech, and send an image of the diamond to someone who wants to buy it on the other side of the world. And, and presenting this solution to an old fashioned diamond dealer, he's like, no, I want to smell the diamond. I want to see the light. And we're like, shit, how do you convert, how do you convey that? What he just said into an actual technology. Right. But, but on the other hand, you have these kids of these diamond dealers who were born with iPhones in their hands and mm. all we need looking for tech. And, and so we really have this deep belief that if we deliver, then people will use it. Right. And we ended up building this type of microwave machine where you put a diamond in and photographs it from hundreds of different angles and creates a 3d image, which you can then just send a link to. And someone on the other side of the world can look at that interactive image and buy the diamond or ask to send a diamond for inspection or even buy it based on that image. Wow. And that, that ended and our belief was that this would be a very big play for the B2B trade. So traders right. around the world would trade diamonds. We never really believed that any consumer would buy a diamond based on our images because you'd see everything. Like you'd see a diamond all over your screen with all the imperfections within it. And we're like, well, no consumer is going to buy a diamond based on this. And so, I mean, I'm saying that is because our one of our initial investors was this online e-commerce platform for selling diamond engagement rings. Mm. And they wanted to use this tech on their website. And the negotiation about how would they do it, they do that and what type of exclusivity they receive was really under the belief that we said, well, no one's going to really buzz. If they want it, fine, but our business is going to be a B2B business. Anyway, long story short, it grew to be the main business. Oh, and interesting. We ended up establishing a diamond uh, laboratories, like photography laboratories in all the diamond exchanges in the world, which are basically five main locations in the world. And what happened was we'd have these machines in our, in our offices in Israel and in India and Hong Kong and Belgium and the US and diamond dealers would bring us their diamonds. We'd photograph them, put them on our website. Those diamond dealers would then sh send a link to those images to their buyers and the whatever in the, in the world. And based on the image, they'd, they'd buy or not. And so it became a standard. Fast forward, the same company that invested us bought us and turned out to be the situation where we'd photograph every single diamond almost in the world. So when we left in 2018, after three years of earnout, we were doing 7,000 diamonds a day. Wow. So basically photographing almost every diamond in the world. And, and today there is almost no diamond in the world that doesn't go through our tech. That's and so amazing. that's the law. Wow. Yeah. And, and how many, how many employees did you have at the end? 250. Okay. No, so that's not, I mean, talk about a scalable company with tech, 250 employees photographing, you know, all the diamonds in the world. I mean, that's, that's gotta be some nice, um, you know, efficiency that you're getting from the product. So, so yeah, but the, the, the main, so most of the diamonds are actually manufactured and polished and photographed in India. Not many people know this, but like, I'd say 95% of our business was in India and we had an operation in Hong Kong and in Belgium and in New York and in Israel as well. And, and now there's also in Botswana and places all over the U S but, but essentially most of the, most of the work is in India. And so we had employees working there 24 seven with wow. a whole just photographing, yeah. Yeah. just photographing that it's not just photographing. Imagine someone bringing you a, a diamond, ensuring that there's a diamond in the small packet. And right. then you know, there's, there's a whole, no, I know it's a wall. chain of custody. My understanding it's a chain of custody. You ha you're essentially, you are creating a, 
complete validation of what that product is. And in your right photograph is, is obviously too light. That's something we can comprehend, but my understanding yeah. is, is you're validating it from end to end and that it's probably now part of a, a security cycle now too, of, okay, now we have, um, this evidence of what everything is to go from place to place. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's sort of the, the story the Sagoma story. Well, but part of the Sagoma story too, I mean, I think from a career perspective, as you went from a co-founder to a CEO, you know, you're negotiating then an acquisition. I mean, that was something I'm sure they didn't, you didn't get a chance to learn in the Sam Zell program. I mean, you had to figure some of that stuff out. And that's something that, you know, I think in this, you know, concept of, in the concept of tech careers and money, like I'd love to hear a little bit about how did you evolve to become the CEO? And then how did you you know, start thinking and in, in planning for that exit and know it was the right time. So we founded the company and I was, uh, we decided that I was going to be the CEO. My co-founder was going to be COO and we convinced a tech guy to, to join us full-time co-founder, quit his job and join us. And so that was sort of the origin of the CEO aspect of it, which wasn't something methodological. It's like, that's how it turned out. Um, right. Almost like drawing and straws. Worked, <laughs> well, it worked well. I mean, you know, I'm also, my, I mean, I'm American. I'm English. I'm, I'm more sort of external. My other co-founder is more internal. And so it's, it right. worked really well. And then fundraising was a process throughout, you know, establishing a company, maintaining a company. At some point, our investor was, again, the same company that invested was also the one that acquired us. So it's not the, the, the conventional play of VC startup world. Hmm. But it was an interesting play out because when we, so we raised money and then like two and a half, three, three years in, we got approached by our investors saying, listen, we want to acquire the whole company. And mm. we're like, we need to think about it. And <laughs> yeah, so the whole negotiation part here was interesting. And also, you know, we, we need to go through another round of fi- financing. And so we met with other investors to see about raising money and at the same time had this acquisition on the table. And there's always a question if this acquisition is it right time? And right. if we can, if we create or capture more value maintaining as we are, and if post acquisition, it'll be fun for us to continue to operate the company. And so after th- like taking all those things into consideration, we decided the acquisition was good for us because it was both cash and equity in the parent company. Oh, wow. And we got a percentage from the top line revenue and we, we maintain a, a sort of a, an autonomous company. So what happened in the acquisition was that I continued to, to manage the company. I we had full autonomy. We just at the end of the month would send a an email to our parent company saying, "All right, this month we need this and this amount of money," and they just transfer it. So it was a really easy life, like that. Wow. The, the and, and we also thought that this was like a synergy because if we become the same company, we have a chance of becoming something a lot more bigger, a lot bigger than if we were each of us on our own. Yes. And it worked out well because a few years down the road, our parent company was acquired by a huge public company. And so it turned wow. out really, 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 really nice. And the, the, the funniest thing is that our, the parent company raised, was raising around a financing and the investor that was going to invest defined an ultimatum that they'll only invest in the parent company if they acquire us. And we only obviously learned that after the fact. And wow. maybe if we knew that it could have gave us more leverage, but I mean, it was a right. good deal. I can't complain. Right. Now, I think that's always interesting. It sounds like there was a lot of of 
levers there that turned that into a big win-win. You, you got cash. So you, you had the ability to say, let's de-risk this. We have all of our investment of time, sweat equity in there. Now we can take some of that off the table. You get shares then in this new parent company. So you're incented to continue to drive. And it sounds like there was also a top line revenue split. So then as managers, let's keep growing the company. Yes, we want to make sure all the diamonds in the world are foot, are imaged by this particular piece of technology. And then the and, and then and, and, go ahead. And also, you know, and also it was sort of like golden handcuffs because we also really got really nice salaries and it was really easy and and yeah. comfortable and like so. Yeah, it is. I mean, and so, and so for for many of us that work in technology and we have these exits, whether it's you know IPO, you know acquisition on whatever level it may be, you know when all of a sudden we go overnight from, okay, is there's this theoretical value to these shares to all of a sudden now I'm getting this big transfer in the bank. What was that? What was that like for you? It was exciting. Uh, it was overwhelming, but it was, it was a really good feeling. Like the, we, we started this thing that was a total idea, a long shot that everyone told us that the chances of us succeeding are close to zero. And then there's a windfall of it. And that's, that's just a really good feeling. It gives you also a boost of confidence as an entrepreneur. Right, right. It gives you a boost of confidence that, you know, and I think talking to, to other people that I know that are serial founders that grow companies to acquisition, once you understand that motion, once you understand what all of that looks like from a numbers perspective, from a product fit perspective, know what it feels like to actually go through that, then all of a sudden that process becomes a little bit easier. It's still really hard, but I think you put things into perspective, right? That's the yeah, thing. yeah. I mean, and maybe that was the wrong word. It doesn't. It's not that it gets easier, but you know what? You know, it's it's almost that sense of, of flow or the sensation where you know when you're on the right track. Like you're able to, with this innate sense of being able to understand how you're navigating the company because you understand what feels right. But you're right. The fuel to all of that, the fuel to growing any startup company, is a lot of hard work. I mean, and it's. Yeah, can be excruciating from a lot of different perspectives. Don't yeah. want to skirt that. <laughs> no, I mean, and thinking about like when you build a company when you're single versus building a company when you have, when you have a wife and three kids. Oh yeah, that's like that's like wow, it was so easy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah we, I know. When you're when you're single and you can throw all your hours at your career and burn the midnight oil, it's great. And then when you try and do that and you're getting you know woken up at two a.m. because you know your wife's <laughs> like, you got to go take care of that kid. That's brutal. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Well, I think, you know, we're at this, you know, uh, the halfway point really of the, of the episode. So I want to take a quick break and I want to come back and I want to start talking about post-acquisition, how you really then took a break and started focusing all on alternative investments. So we'll be right back. And we are back with Litton Yahav and we left off where... Your company gotten acquired, you've gotten a nice payday, you've done the earnout. Now you're on break. Now all of a sudden you have a lot of wealth that you need to manage. What were some of the first steps that you took to start saying, okay, how do I actually start leveraging this to work for me? So first off, get approached, you know, with the PR around an acquisition, you get approached by a bunch of people offering to manage your money, offering to sell you a financial product, this means or another. It is a little bit overwhelming and, you know, us being entrepreneurs also liking risk. We're like, well, we can do part of this on our own. We're good. And we also know enough people that have done similar situations that have been in some similar situations. And so it's like, all right, so we didn't make tens of millions in this exit, but we made enough. Right. 
Yeah. And, and we wanted to continue to grow it, right? And so when you want to continue to grow it, you want to take more risks than just put it in an ETF or just put it in, in um, you know, some sort of stock bond allocation. And for us, it's, and we live in Israel. And the thing about Israel is that every second person here does real estate, private equity investing. Oh, wow. Uh, the joke. The joke is that if you have $50,000 free cash, you're going to go buy an apartment in Berlin you've never seen before. That's like, <laughs> wow. Because you, know you know a guy who knows a guy who does it. Right. And so you start meeting with people that either sold companies or are, either, are in that world of mm. private investing. And during the time, you know, the cash had to sit somewhere and you got approached by different private banks. And we ended up putting money in one of these private banks here in Israel. And the funny story is three months later, they kick us out of the bank because we took all of our money and we invested it elsewhere because we uh, didn't want to invest it in the, in any of the products. We just deployed capital mainly abroad in the US and in Europe uh, with people that we grew to, to know and trust and decided that was the that was the route for us. And and there were different room uh, things we did in, in the private alternative investing world that we liked more other than we liked less. Uh, learned a lot about leverage, mm. which now is a now is a bad word, but back then it was a really good, it was, it was a right. good world. It was a great word. Yeah. When it was low, yeah. low, low cost of, yeah. of leverage. Yeah. You brought up a really interesting point. So there's more, it sounds like there's more of a culture of looking at private equity versus there is in, in traditional. And so for everyone here listening here in the United States and, and, and abroad too, but traditional investments here in the United States are stock market, the bonds, certificates of deposit, CDs, any money market account. Those are things that are going to be overseen by the SEC. You know, the Security and Exchange Commission, there's a series of rules, the very liquid, productized. Anything outside of that is considered alternative investment. And the main one that many people know is real estate. We all love real estate. The reason is that in real estate here in the United States anyway, not sure where the tax treatment is overseas, but you basically get paid four ways. Right, as they as you get the cash flow off the property, you actually get depreciation, so that helps you on your taxes. You can get appreciation; the property can increase in value, and then also depending on how the debt structure, you can also be getting equity pay down. So you're actually somebody else's is paying into the equity that you're getting to own more of. And so, from your vantage point, you saw okay. Let's start then taking more risk, deploying things into private equity. How did you? How did you start learning? What was your, your path to learn to underwrite or to vet operators? Really simple at the beginning. It was basically, will this person screw me over or won't they? And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, the best way to, for me to vet that was how like the level of trust that I have with this person. So they're either a really good friend of mine or a really good friend of a really good friend. That was like the first mm. off the bat path to decision making for us. And again, because we're in Israel, it's pretty easy to find those people that you can trust. Mm. The risk for their you know, experience might be a different type of risk, but we ended up doing that. And so like the first two investments we did were actually buying two single family homes in, o in Ohio. Okay. And these were two single yeah. family homes in Ohio. And the idea was to rent them out and have a property manager. We did not see these properties. We never visited them. Like I didn't really care about pictures or anything. All I wanted to know is that this is a person I trust. The numbers make sense. And we bought those two properties. And at the same time, we also invested in a few syndications. So okay. those syndications, and we can dive into that, but that's like, that's the private equity real estate where you just put in cash and it's totally passive. Right. Um, and these single family homes, they were, I don't know, politically, this was, it was a shit show. And you can bleep that out if you want, but it was yeah. a shit show. And so, 
then we're just like a lot of work, not generating the returns we're expecting. And at the same time, these syndications are like, we'd get, you know, like clockwork every quarter, we get distributions. They were overperforming. They were above, like, it was outperforming the single family homes. And we're like, why would you want to do this? We work so hard, phone calls with, you know, property managers and, and tenants in the municipality. It's not performing as we expected. Taxes are hard. Let's just put more money into the syndications as opposed to this stuff. And, and that just continued to grow. And we only managed to get rid of these single family homes like two years ago. Wow. Yeah. And so I think what Lytton is, is drawing out here is that this is the active versus passive investing. Active investing is where you directly own an asset and you have to then bring in the team, the managers, whatever. And remote active investing is really hard. And even active investing in your backyard can be hard because the question is how many phone calls are between you and the broken toilet? Honestly, right? It's like that versus, you know, the real private equity, the real passive investing is then investing in syndications where everybody pools their money together to buy a single asset, or there's also very efficient private equity funds. And you get the same benefit. You get those same four benefits that I articulated before as an owner, but you are a limited partner. Your liability is only limited to the dollars that you put into that deal itself. I have this sort of, for me, it's, I look at the, the investing strategy for me as there's passive and active. That's like one, one sort of line of the side of the chart. And then there's risk and return, right? So, yeah. And there you can, it's, it's always a matter of like how much you want to be passive versus how much risk return you're looking for. Right. And mm -hmm. for me, I want to be as passive as possible, but with high risk return. And so for me, that was like, where, where can I be as passive as possible with high risk return? Private equity, real estate investing for me was, was a solution. There's even more passive, like with lower risk return. Oh yeah. Which is like, you know, I got publicly traded REITs, for example, and there's more active with higher risk return, which is active real estate, like the extreme being Airbnbs, for example. Right. And so we put ourselves on the spectrum of why I want to be super, I want to be passive with relatively high risk return. And that was the asset class for us. So as you started then maturing as an alternative investor, you know, so, so your first active investments were single family homes. What were your first syndications? Multifamily? Yeah. Multifamily value add syndications. I think the first one was in, I don't remember, somewhere in Florida. The second was in uh, Atlanta. And these two is like, you know, simple multifamily value add plays. Mm -hmm. And where, where did you then diversify your portfolio from there, whether that's geographically or different asset classes? It was always about the operator for me, the GP, mm. right? How do we find more people we can trust who have other deals? I don't, it didn't really matter the deals, just the numbers we needed to match. And then it turned out being that we invested in developing deals uh, mm. in, in the U.S., some in Europe as well, because we wanted to diversify from a cur currency perspective. We wanted wow. U.S. dollars and euros. And, and so there was more multifamily, more development stuff, development of, you know, building flips or land development or apartment flips. So it was, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of those types of deals with different operators, just finding the people we can continue to trust that delivered well. And then within those operators there are people that we also learned a lot about, like what even a definition of these syndicators is like there's a capital mm. raiser, there's an operator, there's a syndicator. And, you know, then there's the, the vertically integrated syndicators. There's so much terminology within the world of private and private investing that took us time to sort of learn the ropes and get more familiar with all the terminology and stuff. Like that. It, it is. And I mean, and this is where I mean, I think sort of, you know, now sort of coming back out. Right. I think as when 
you go through these exits, you get this wealth, and all of a sudden now I'm a high net worth individual. I want to now have a portfolio that's in traditional investments, but I want to start playing in alternatives. You know, I think I heard you say the same thing where I want my traditional portfolio to be on automatic. I don't want to have to manage that because I want to spend the time managing my alternative investments because for me, that's where the cash flow is. That's where the greater reward is. That's where the greater tax benefits are. I want to spend my my time there. And I think that's what I, I heard you say as well, is that's that's where you're seeing the, the real opportunity is from a understanding and knowing your portfolio. And the reason I think many people don't do it, at least here in the United States, they either don't know about it or it is it's challenging. Like it takes some work to get into. The biggest challenge, and I just want to clarify, it's not the time. I don't want to put more time in. I want to put more right. cash in. I don't want, and you know, when it becomes too much time, that's why we built the current company. But, right. but um, I think that the biggest hurdle that people find in private investing in general is finding people they can trust. Mm. That's the biggest challenge, right? You know, people are like, well, how do I find a good operator? Well, how, what if they, what if they're lying? What if they screw me over? It's, that's the biggest problem that people face. I think you're right. I mean, because the, the thing is, is when in any relationship you have to put in time. I mean, I know, you know, I'm, I'm going through a vetting right now and I've been watching this particular team operate for probably 14 months, watching them, getting their reports, jump on the phone ask them what they're doing because, you know, I'm going in cold to this group. They came and they gave me the sales pitch. Look great. But if they're willing to answer my questions, take time, we get some meetings and I'm watching how they operate, how transparent they are, those things, like that's what it takes sometimes, especially if you're thinking about deploying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money and maybe even other people's money too. Those things take time and you have to be, you got to be patient. Totally. That's what people like I've seen recently have been growing into connecting with similar people, similar individuals, communities, like investor communities, these forums, groups, connecting with people that have that experience, that, that have done it before. Yeah. Well, and that's actually, I think, a great thing too, is that there are a lot of groups, there's a lot of like-minded in individuals that then it goes back to that, you know, chain of trust that you were talking about earlier, as I get to know you know, an investor and we start sharing, you know, results and not that we always talk dollar amounts, but we'll talk about what was our cash on cash? What was our IRR? And what was the relationship with the, uh, different operators? Then we're going to start then investing as a pack, investing as a, as a team, because I'm definitely going to follow that chain of trust as far as I can. Cause reputation is everything, right? And people will not ruin their reputation within these groups. It's true. It's very, very true. So now as you're growing as this uh, alternative investor, all of a sudden you realize that managing this stuff on a bunch, like a hundred different spreadsheets is brutal. And, and you, you see another opportunity. Walk us through uh, how did your passion for investing and then to your point, not wanting to take a ton of time of it, let lead to the second company. It's so like I mentioned for me, it was like passive. Remember passive versus risk return. Yeah. And at some point, a few years in, we did like 20 something deals and I get an email and I'm like, oh shit, what, when did I invest with this guy and how much did I invest? These are good problems to have. Like it just became a mess. It became a whole job of managing the interactions, managing the cash flow, mm. the tax documents just became hard for us. And like, we didn't make enough money that, to have a family office or stuff like that. And, right. And so you're like in, in between building a crazy spreadsheet, working hard to update, tracking down cash flows, 
tracking down documents. And we're like, well, there has to be a solution for this. And so we built ourselves a piece of software. We hired an engineer and we said, all right, this is what we need. Let's start building it for us and start to automate that process of you know, aggregating all our information, all the emails, the documents, the bank accounts, the cash flow transactions, like all that. And then a bunch of friends around us wanted it as well. We're like, wait, there might be a whole business here. And, you know, spoke with a bunch of people around the world, trying to understand what's out there, how people solve this problem and found that there isn't a real good solution for them. And so we decided to take what we built for ourselves, raise money for it and turn it into a, a whole new business. And that's what, what Visor is, what we're working on today turned out to be. We founded the company like two and a half years ago and, and it's, it's a, uh, based on our own problem solving our own money. And sometimes I don't, I think that there's no better problem to solve than something that you understand intimately. And I know that this is a, a huge problem because many of these personal finance managers, if you will, are just laser focused on traditional investments and they do not serve the alternatives where Visor for me becomes this complete solution because it's so easy to then plug in whatever you know, brokerage account you may have and just suck that in immediately and understand what that is. But you can also then be putting in individually held real estate. You can be putting in private equity funds or hedge funds and other things. So it really gives you that full view uh, versus I think pre-visor for me was always, you know, I'm half in a tool and then I'm half in spreadsheets. I mean, it's just frustrating. Exactly. And, and yeah, and it grows, right? It doesn't say static. It's like a dynamic spreadsheet and it grows hopefully over time. Yeah, it does. You know, as you have exits and those types of things. And so tracking that stuff, it's important for people to understand again, because I actually think going back to your diamond example, when you walked into the diamond industry and you're like, Hey, there's all this high security, then you go behind the doors and it's 50 years in the past real estate's really like that too. I mean, I think it's now uh, starting to accelerate with with all of the technology that's coming towards it. It started arguably with a lot of the property management software, but there's still a lot of great companies that are executed very well from a uh, real estate perspective, but their processes and their systems are really, really um, outdated. 100%, yeah. When you invest in these deals, you also get username and passwords to a bunch of these different investor portals, right? And each of them has a different portal. And just like, it's just like, you need to bundle it up uh, again, because it's become unbundled, like they say in you know, the, <laughs> the startup world, right? Yeah, no, no, it really, really has. It's created some sprawl. And I know it's something that people really, really struggle with. So what do you think the outlook is in this high interest rate environment? What's your personal outlook on a private equity market? I think that over the years, the past, I'd say even 10 years were unbelievable and will not repeat. That's the way I think. What happened was in sort of uh, the abnormal. The normal was when interest rates come back to where they're supposed to be, right? right. Interest rates are not supposed to be 0%. They're supposed <laughs> to be around 3 4 5%. And so a lot of operators that came out over the past 10 years will not survive this upcoming period because they're used to easy, easy times. That's why I say, like, I think that yeah. the way deals were vetted, the numbers people took into account, the loan to asset values were out of proportion, refinances, which people think were supposed to happen, won't happen as planned. Right. Add on top of that, it's a lot harder to fundraise. It's a lot harder to fundraise now because even though people are still sitting on cash, the alternatives, just for example, the zero, the zero risk interest rates, you know, 5%, it's hard to convince someone that 
will give you 8% annual cash on cash, a higher risk, and people might not want to. So I think that the whole play that was around over the past 10 years is going to change. You also see a lot of operators now moving from a single deal model to a mm -hmm. fund model. Yes. For various reasons, but it's a different type of fundraising and a different type of allocation. The play now is also, there's always going to be good properties to buy. There's always going to be distress. There's always going to be people who need to sell. That's so right. there's still going to be opportunities, but I only think the best operators are going to survive this upcoming downturn over the next year or two. So now, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think as some of these rate locks start to expire and people who, you know, there was a lot of people being very, very aggressive in 21, in 22, just thinking that these tailwinds and thinking that the tailwinds were going to continue and then also thinking that rates wouldn't climb as fast as they did. Nobody saw that coming. So as these rate locks start to expire, and I, I think there is going to be a cycle as, you know, we're starting to see it now as if you've seen some of these Houston deals that have, you know, now gone bankrupt and have been distressed and a lot of investors are losing money. People are going to say, well, wait, I can get five. I mean, I saw on rates the other day, you can get like five, two, five right now in like a high yield savings account. Okay. Tell me what that is going to be. And now you're saying I might get two and a half points more to be in this real estate deal. Like help me understand that risk. I do align with you in the sense that I think that, you know, really robust outfits are going to continue to do well. And we're going to get the opportunity to see the herd being thinned and understand who we want to invest with. So I think that's a good thing. But I, I definitely think that we're still we're still in for some headwinds ahead. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Interesting times. Yeah. Interesting times ahead. Well, I want to thank you so much, man. And as we transition out, we always end up with a little bit of a fire round. I'm going to fire off a five five questions here. You know, some skills that sort of help you keep moving forward. So how do you keep learning? A lot of podcasts, uh, listening to podcasts and um, educating myself and also listening and reading books. And that segues maybe into another question, but sort of one of the books that I value the most over the last few years that I've read is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss about negotiation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, an, that's an amazing book. And, and so, and always surround myself with people that are smarter than me. Mm, yeah. That's great because they will always keep challenging you and you're going to be thinking about what was just said in the room. That's a great one. You know, you are founder of a startup. I know you're working really hard across different international hours. What do you do to recharge? So I have three kids and even though kids don't really help to recharge, I do feel like when I get home before they go to sleep and just enjoy, you know, some time with them before, just like absorb like why, why, why we do what we do. Uh, because for me, it's about, you know, the, the, also, obviously, to build something that brings value to other people, but also because I want to spend time with my family and the kids and experience stuff. And so the time with them is sort of like it fills me up. And also I try to to do some mindfulness and meditation stuff. Mm. Uh, I, I did the Wim Hof stuff for, for, for some time, the, you know, cold showers and, and yes. breathing exercises because there is a lot of stress, right, that you need to relieve it. And, and so those are the stuff I do. And I, I try to take some vacations here and there. Not a lot. But those are things that sort of fill me up. So like the other week we were on this founder sailing trip, just a oh. bunch of founders going sailing. And yeah. it was amazing. It's one of those things that I look for it like for the entire year. And so hey, did they let you drive the boat? I was one of the skippers. Oh, you were. Okay. I figured as much, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so we've heard about your growth and growing these different companies. What soft skill do you think has helped your career the most? Creativity mm. and an out-of-the-box approach, I'd say. And I'm super stubborn, so that can help in other, 
but you know, we're driven to win. Wow. That's great, man. What has been the best return on your time invested? This might sound like, again, like I'm, I'm repeating myself previously, but I feel like the time I spend with my family is the biggest investment I can put in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It fills you up. It does. It really does. And so what's been the worst money or investing advice you ever received? <laughs> um, yeah. So for me, it's like, you know, when I, when we sold the company, people came and said, well, you give us the money and we'll put it in a, a managed uh, a brokerage account. And let's take some loans against that part of the money I did mm -hmm. <laughs> and put it at, you know, this leverage that at an interest rate that fluctuated now over time. So that was bad advice to believe that the interest rates would stay low. Back right. Then. Leverage so that. over leverage on that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just so interesting when, when you go through those, those sudden wealth moments and people come out of the woodwork and they come at you with all this advice, it's really hard to know. It's so hard to know what to do. So that's where I think yeah. getting into some of these communities, understanding what other people have done. And this is exactly why this podcast is here. So where can people learn more about you and Visor? You can reach out to me, uh, litonadvisor.co, our website, visor.co, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm super available, happy to chat, happy to answer any questions I can, I can, I can bring value to. Great. Let's get those links and we'll put those in the, in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Lytton, and thank you everybody for listening. This is Tech Careers and Money Talk, and remember, we're a brand new podcast, so please follow us where you listen, Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it, we're there. And we would also ask that you please leave us a review. Let us know what you found valuable in today's podcast. And then please share this with everybody you know. I know there's so many technology employees who want to have this conversation about career and money, and this is the place we're having it. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.